You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Um, hi, Riverside. I'm Andrew. Today's passage has been called many things. It's been called perhaps a reminder of the good old days. It's been called timeless wisdom for Christian families. It's been called archaic and oppressive. It's been called confirmation that the Apostle Paul was just a sexist, misogynist, pro-slavery advocate. It's been called prescriptive of the worst possible traditions or of the best godly traditions, depending on which, uh, which camp you lie in, right? And maybe this language and these roles are just plain awkward and make us feel a little uncomfortable. Or you're just okay with it. Full spectrum, right? Very, very wide, very wide spectrum today. Um, There's temptations to center this kind of passage in a very particularly culturally conditioned understanding of it and make it the heart of our lives. And there's also temptations to reject it entirely and say, well, I'm just going to skip that part, right? I hope today that we all can see beauty beneath the surface, wisdom for our lives, and an opportunity to center the Lord Jesus and his authority in our households in ways that we've never imagined or thought of before. But before we get into any of that, we really got to pray. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank uh, Thank you for your word. When it challenges us, when it comforts us, we thank you for all the ways that it shapes us, Lord, into a people that look more like your son, Jesus. And pray that it does just that today. So may these words of my mouth And the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For those who haven't been around, we are walking verse by verse through the book of Colossians. So I didn't just pull this passage out today just to pick on people. Um, We are just, we're we're not going to skip anything that the the Apostle Paul has written. Um, So I want to say as we start that all these household regulations that, that Amy just read for us, they flow from the last verse that we read last Sunday, okay? So I want to look back at that verse before we dive in. So verse 17 of Colossians 3 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is the context for all of these instructions for households. Um, The reality that Christ transforms whatever we do, including our home lives and our relationships, is at the heart of this passage. So any marching orders that we take from this passage should at their heart be ways of living out the gospel in this world. That is, what is, that's, that is Paul's intent with these words. Um, he's not just sprinkling a little bit of Jesus on the way a patriarchal or enslaving culture was living in their households. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not also dismantling the ways of the culture either, right? He doesn't do either of those things. Rather, he's insisting on a fully Christ-centered reframing of how the Colossians are to inhabit their role in their their households in which they find themselves. That's what we get in Colossians chapter 3. Paul does very similar things in other letters, including sections of household regulations in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. And in Ephesians in particular, 
Paul spends a lot more time unpacking the instructions to husbands and wives than he does in Colossians, uh, where he's pretty short and to the point. But that's, that's just for your own reading later if you'd like to read all the rest of the household regulations. Um, and then one more thing, one more crucial thing before we dive into today's passage is that this line of thinking introduced in verse 11 of chapter 3 is important to us. It's got to be foundational if we're going to understand what Paul's doing, um, starting in verse 18. So verse 11 of Colossians 3 said this, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Right? So if you're familiar with Galatians 3.28, maybe you are, you'll know that in that list, Paul also includes there is no male or female in that list as well, right? In Christ. So when Paul says that in Colossians 3.11, is he saying that there's no meaningful difference between a Gentile person and a Jewish person? Or an uncircumcised person and a circumcised person? Or an enslaved or a free person? Is he saying there's actually no difference? That there's no difference between male and female? Is that what Paul's saying? No. The whole reason Paul has to say any of this is because there are differences, right? There are differences, and there's differences that cause all sorts of tensions and difficulties and infighting, right? There's lots of differences between people, and they're real. Paul is not arguing that there is no difference between these groups of people, but that the gospel of Jesus takes several categories that are used to pit a better group against a lesser group, right? In all these, these categories, society has said this one is better and this one is lesser, okay? And you can probably pick which one is which if you, as you go through the list, right? Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus takes those categories and makes something new possible, a leveling of the playing field at the most basic level. Hierarchical structures of power or status that would say one group is superior to another have been undone in Christ, in the cross, and in the resurrection, okay? In Christ, difference and distinction, good. Hierarchy and superiority, bad, okay? That's, that's like the, the caveman translation, right? Difference and distinction, good. Hierarchy and superiority, bad. So, let's jump into verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the passage begins with the marriage relationship, right? Apologies to any single folks who are left out of those instructions. But I do believe everyone can glean some insight from the passage. And not just in case you get married someday. I hope that there's something that we can all take from this, whether you ever get married or not. But we're going to have to get into the weeds of marriage talk because that's what the passage does. Bear with me. It starts with wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. So what does it mean for something to be fitting in the Lord? Last week we talked a lot about clothes. Clothe yourselves with these virtues. What do, what do clothes do? They either fit or they don't fit, right? Okay, so this as it is fitting in the Lord. Uh, assume that that means that what is fitting in the Lord is describing something about our new life under King Jesus. The first bit, the call to submit to your husband, would have been completely unsurprising and consistent with any household regulation of the time, right? The call for a woman to submit to her husband, that's par for the course. Every other household code, every other cultural code would have said, yes, please do that. Um, But the motive behind that 
the motive behind what stands behind this call to submit matters, doesn't it? It's not anchored in some sort of ontological inferiority of women. You can ask Blake if you want to know what ontological means. Okay. <laughs> um, it's not rooted in that. It's not rooted in... Uh, um, I lost my point. Taking on Blake. Uh, yeah, it's not rooted in ontological inferior women or, or a disqualification based on gender. It's based on the gospel, right? It's based on the gospel. So if I'm a wife, and I'm not, but if I was a wife, I live my life as a wife, not shaped by cultural expectations or worldly philosophies, but by my commitment to Jesus as a wife, the way I live as a wife is to be shaped by my commitment to Jesus. The way I engage with my husband is part of my walk with Jesus. Again, I don't have a husband. And my life is Jesus. Paul is not asking Christian households to absorb like the Roman hierarchical way of life. He's only asking them to live faithfully in the way of Jesus. Speaking of which, husbands. We're told to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now that was not in every household code at the time. That's a very different instruction to husbands than most codes would have given at the time, certainly the Roman codes. Uh, in the household codes in Ephesians 5, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a high bar. But husbands are specifically told also here not to be harsh. And as you can imagine, in a Roman society, it was not uncommon for husbands to be quite harsh, even abusive with their wives. And of course, not just in Roman society. But in Roman society, the call to submission was rooted in a widely held belief that men were superior and women were inferior, right? Very widely held belief. Aristotle wrote in politics, very influential philosopher, you might have heard of him. Aristotle wrote, between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. So this idea of a whole class of people being inherently inferior to another, that actually does not belong in the kingdom of God. Aristotle's philosophy on this point does not belong in the kingdom of God. Scripture does not make room for these kinds of ideas. And to say it does is to distort the Bible. The scriptures do not want there to be a group that is categorically superior and categorically inferior that runs against so much teaching of scripture. To say it does is to distort the Bible and to import our own cultural values onto it rather than understanding what it says. Because in the church, Paul's rationale for wives to submit is far, far different. It has nothing to do with somebody being better than another. As we'll see later when we talk about slaves and masters, Paul does stop short of any revolutionary call to turn society on its head, but he does offer this. Wives serve their husbands, and husbands sacrifice themselves for their wives precisely because that is what love looks like, and that is what following Jesus looks like. Love is the thing that binds all virtues together. We just talked about that last week. It is the anchor for husbands and wives as Christ followers living in first century Colossae, right? That's what Paul's getting at here. No questions, right? Answered everything? 
We're going to move on, but we'll come back to the topic. We're going to move on to the father-child relationship. Now, I'm tempted to make a joke about Paul as a single man knowing better than to try to give advice to mothers. But I'm not going to make that joke because that might actually be why he didn't write anything to mothers, right? It might actually be true. But yeah, okay. I thought, that would, I thought that would land. It's fine. Um, in any case, what we get is for fathers and children. So children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Get that? Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The call to children here is very short. Reminiscent of the Old Testament command to honor your father and mother, right? This is giving children a way to live out their commitment to Jesus. To obey their parents can be my child's offering to the Lord. Sorry, did I say my child's offering? I meant a child's offering. But yes, obedience to your parents can be an offering to the Lord. Just in case you wanted a little motivation there. Um, but the fact that children here are addressed directly in Scripture, that's a rare thing in itself. And they're also, they're given a way to please the Lord, which actually a lot of kids want to do. Um, to the situation where kids are seeking to be obedient, fathers are tasked with something quite difficult, which is to not embitter their children. Any fathers in the room? Find it difficult to not embitter your children? I mean, my kids are wonderful and kind, and also there are days when it feels like no matter what I do or how hard I try, they are bent on being bitter with whatever happens, no matter what. That is to say, I can do what I can, to be patient and gentle. Remember those virtues from last Sunday? They're important. But sometimes kids get discouraged anyway. I'm pretty sure sometimes kids try to be obedient and their dad doesn't notice or acknowledge it, too. So remember, these are relationships. And as such, they're two-way streets. So even to speak of a parent-child relationship as a two-way street is kind of revolutionary. A radical way of looking at a household in the first century, for sure. The fact that a father is called to demonstrate virtues of restraint is a pretty radical way to look at the household, too, right? Do not embitter or they will be discouraged. The fact that a father is called to, to demonstrate values of restraint is one that's surely meant to protect and nurture vulnerable children, right? That's important. And now we turn to the most controversial of them all, slaves and their masters. Verse 22, slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I will not attempt to completely address this complex topic today. We actually have a couple more opportunities to talk about slavery at the end of Colossians and then when we look at Philemon. Uh, so we'll dig into some more specifics. But of course, I'm not just going to ignore it today. We're going to talk about it. At the start, i got to reiterate that the, the, the basis of the slave's call to obedience is not rooted in anything other than their new life in Christ. Okay? 
Paul is not hanging these instructions on the glory of, no, of Rome, the, inferior, the, the superiority of masters, and the inferiority of slaves. In fact, he says right in the passage, there is no favoritism, which is kind of hard to reconcile with the very idea of slaves and masters, right? But there it is. It's in the passage. Uh, the conversation about uh, whether slavery is good or bad is unaddressed, which to our ears is often a little like, come on, Paul, could you just dug in a little bit further? But we have to deal with what we have. We don't add things to the text. Um, what is addressed is that like all the others on the underside of society, slaves here are given meaningful ways to do whatever they do for the glory of God. Not for the glory of their master, not for the glory of anything else, not for the glory of Rome, but for the glory of the Lord alone. That is what they are given. And look at the hope given in verse 24. If you go back, oh, it's already up there. Verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. An inheritance? For a slave who has no right to any inheritance, that's got to be good news, right? In the public reading of this letter, which they would have heard, Slaves likely would have hung on every word, and surely that word inheritance would have perked up their ears, right? Surely they knew the implications of these words for how their master was to treat them in a Christian household as well, in chapter 4, verse 1. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. For a slave to be actually given what is right and fair, right? We're picturing a different kind of slavery at this point. Because when we picture slavery, we picture something that we understand from history, right? And it was never right and fair. And there's no way you can consider it right and fair based on many of the situations we can think of. But what we're talking about here is a call for masters to do what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. Can you also imagine the slave hearing that their master has a master too? They're not the top master. They're not the top dog. They have the same master that you do. And Christ is the one on top. He is the master. So, perfectly clear, right? <laughs> what have we heard here so far? I've tried to offer some faithful study, some context, and some interpretation of this text. But we've got to go a little further, right? For this to help us live more fully according to life in the kingdom of God. We've still got to do some application here, right? So what's abundantly clear to me in this text is that all structures, any structure, whether it's life-giving, neutral, or oppressive, is reconfigured under Christ's authority. Any structure is reconfigured under Christ's authority. But what does that reconfiguration look like? From our vantage point in 2023, we've made it pretty clear, we've made a pretty clear moral judgment that slavery is bad. That seems like a fairly obvious point to most of us. That slavery is a unjust and oppressive structure that ought to be dismantled, right? Many people, most of us agree with that, right? It's also true that Paul doesn't say in Colossians anywhere that slavery is bad and ought to be dismantled. I, did, I didn't read that verse. Did you read that verse? Unfortunately, no, we did not read that verse. But I also know that as long as there have been slavery prohibitionists, abolitionists, there have been Christian abolitionists, right? Those who want to abolish slavery. Christ's followers were very early to the conviction that slavery is a moral evil and ought to be dismantled, right? It was a gradual process, probably. It went from 
putting some of this into action, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more seeing this person as a human and not just a piece of property, right? Whatever it looked like in different situations, and of course there have been terrible, terrible situations that don't resemble that at all, right? But Christ's followers were early to this conviction that slavery is a moral evil and ought to be dismantled. that, That no matter how much freedom to worship enslaved persons were given, the very situation of slavery fails to uphold the radical reorientation of power structures made real in Jesus. And I hope that none of us, I hope that none of us would say that these abolitionists were being unfaithful to the Bible by their pursuit of the freedom for those enslaved. I would hope not. But it's tragic that other Christians, non-abolitionists, Looked at this passage like today's, where Paul instructs slaves how to live in their faith in the midst of their enslavement, and they interpreted it as some sort of divine mandate that slavery is somehow ordained by God. That happened. Still happens, probably. I hope we see that Paul offers specific wisdom to specific people at a specific time in a specific context, approaching the institution of slavery with a radically Christ-centered perspective honoring and dignifying the enslaved as much as possible within the community of Colossae as it existed. And I can't know for absolute certainty if Paul wanted slavery to be abolished. He didn't say it in his letters. But as a student of the New Testament, I am sure that the history of pro-slavery arguments made in Jesus' name using Paul's writings would have sent Paul right back to his writing desk to, let's say, forcefully clear up a few things. I mean, you know how Paul writes, right? He would have been upset. What's clear from this passage and all of Colossians is that all authority is Christ, right? We've kind of hit on that point over and over and over again. All authority is Christ. And any notion of having authority for us is to be held loosely and fully given over to Jesus. So parents, you have significant authority over your kids, right? Yeah? It may not feel like it all the time, but you have, you have significant authority over your kids. You come up against the reality all the time that you also cannot control your kids. Amen? Okay. The older they get, right, the more obvious this becomes. The level of influence goes up and down over time. When our kids struggle... We entrust them to the Lord. We try not to embitter them or make them discouraged, and we leave the rest to Jesus, right? We try to do whatever we can to be faithful and loving in a parent relationship, parent-child relationship. Similar to what has happened with slavery, Paul's words have been used in marriages to justify worldly, say worldly, patriarchal power structures that perpetuate the idea of female inferiority in ways that contradict the teaching of Scripture. Right? That has happened. That has happened. It's perfectly fine to largely embrace traditional gender roles in a marriage. Right? That's perfectly fine. When they're grounded in mutual submission and love and given over to Jesus, right? This is beautiful. But we ought not to assume that just because the wisdom of Scripture is written to people in churches steeped in hierarchy and categories of superiority and inferiority, that the Scriptures are therefore lifting those hierarchies or categories as things to be emulated or preserved for eternity. 
right? Just because they were written into that context doesn't mean that Paul wanted to preserve the context of hierarchalism. Okay. What this text does give us and does give the Colossians is great wisdom for how to live faithfully right in the situation they're in, right? This is how you live faithfully right in the situation you are in. And even if it may not seem like it on the surface, this passage gives us great wisdom for how to live faithfully in the situations we are in. So even if you are not a wife, a husband, a child, a father, a slave, or a master, you can absolutely find purpose in doing whatever you do for the Lord, right? Everybody in every kind of relationship, in every type of household, can find purpose doing it for the Lord. This passage is not prescribing for you to get married and have kids, any more than it is prescribing for you to own slaves. Right? So if you already, if you already are married and have kids, that's awesome. But the text doesn't pre- prescribe that. This passage doesn't. There's many passages of Scripture that celebrate and uphold as exemplary marriage and child-rearing. They're beautiful, good things. But they're not the only ways to bring glory to God either, right? For Paul to say so would, would be pretty hypocritical, given what he said in 1 Corinthians 7, that it is better for the unmarried to remain unmarried. He said that too. So we've got to listen to everything he says. So just like everything in today's passage, Whether you're married or unmarried, whether you have kids or without kids, the call is rooted in the central commitment to be faithful to Jesus above everything else. That is our call, to be faithful to Jesus above everything else. So I think this passage is a beautiful invitation and proclamation for all of us. This idea that Christ transforms whatever we do that he gives new purpose to every area of life, including our home lives and our relationships. All expressions of major household institutions, whether life-giving like marriage or parenting or oppressive like slavery, they're all reconfigured under Christ's authority. And that's because all authority is Christ's. And any notion of having authority for us is to be embraced and taken seriously, but in love, held loosely, and fully committed to Jesus. That's what we do with all the authority that we have access to that we are given. We hold it loosely and we give it over to Jesus. More could be said, and indeed has been said, on all of these topics, okay? Lord knows. But I really do find it helpful to view it all in the context of all that Paul and Timothy are trying to get across to this Colossian church. The central conviction that regardless of anything you've heard, there is no higher authority from Jesus. There are no add-on requirements beyond entrusting your whole life to Jesus. And this entrusting your life to Jesus touches every single aspect of our lives, starting right in our homes. So may each of us find beautiful ways to follow Jesus right now in our homes, no matter what your home looks like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the goodness of your word. There are times when peeling back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history 
seems like a big task. Words and categories that have taken on new meanings over time that make it really hard to understand what you were getting at, what the Word was getting at all those years ago. But we trust your Holy Spirit. We trust your Holy Spirit to continue to move in your church and in our lives. We trust your Word to continue to speak to us. We thank you, Lord, for all of this wisdom that you've given us. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.